I guess it's about that time. So let's pause for prayer and then we'll just jump right in. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the grace we have in Christ. Be with us tonight as we continue Malachi. May you give me the ability to speak clearly and also uh, that the others will comprehend it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now last week, I think we left off on page, we're on page 41. And we're going to pick up with the second paragraph. We're describing the marriage covenant in the Old Testament. And uh, I was trying to set forth last week. The marriage covenant, the foundation is with the creation ordinance in Genesis 2. However, that is incorporated into the Mosaic Covenant and more uh, regulations were attached to it. And so we were going through what is that covenant and tonight we wanted to look at the final thing. And that's when there was a marriage. It was not complete until there was an, an oath sign Uh, This may have also involved a verbal oath as well as sexual union. This oath sign must not be confused with the bride price. Remember the bride price? That's what a dad gives to his daughter who's to be married. Uh, That gives her some type of protection in case anything goes wrong in the marriage. Um, So this, uh, this would be given to her in the case there would be something like a divorce. Sexual union between a man and a woman in the context of a mutual agreement for a permanent relationship between two families was understood as a marriage constituting act and correspondingly was considered a requirement for covenant ratifying and renewing oath sign for marriage. So it's proper to speak of the marriage as a marriage covenant. Um, remember, I identified four aspects to the marriage covenant. That would go back to page, uh, I would be believe that would be page 39 at the bottom of the page. There's four essential ingredients to an Old Testament marriage covenant. Number one, there's a relationship. Two, it's with a non-relative. Three, which involves obligation and is established through an oath. So there's a relationship with a non-relative. So a brother could not marry a sister. What a terrible thought. Which involves obligation and is established through an oath. We're looking at the fourth of those items on page 41. That is that O sign. So all four of those are necessary to have a proper marriage. In the Garden of Eden, uh, Eve was not the sister of Adam. 
she was taken from his side. Now, by the way, early on, you know, brothers and sisters did marry. That of necessity had to be the case. Now, it's really through the corruption uh, with the genes and stuff like that. As time goes on, that's why you'll have, um, you know, more chances of retardation in marriage if you marry a, a brother or sister. So Western civilizations have generally outlawed that. And that's rightfully so just to protect from all the potential medical risks for the child. Um, and further, I know my sister pretty well. I would never want to be married to her. <laughs> so, anyway. Well, let's make two observations from Malachi 2.14 about the seriousness of the covenant between a husband and wife. In fact, let's read this verse just so we're on board with it. Notice verse 14 says, You ask why. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now remember, the wife of his youth, that comes about because a marriage covenant, or at least part of it, was set up. Usually this was, most of the time, this was even before puberty. So families arranged for a young, their son, and somebody else's daughter, vice versa, to be married. That's why it's called the marriage of your youth. Not because they were necessarily so young, though Linda and I were. I was 23 and she was 21. But Dr. McCune and his wife were, I think, 18 and 19. That's pretty young. (laughs) So we've got friends who've married pretty young, but that's not what this is talking about. It's, it's something that happened when they were in their youth. Sometimes this was done even right at birth. So, I don't know, has anybody ever seen Pride and Prejudice? You've seen it, Kim, haven't you? I think I have, but it's been many years. Yeah. Aaron, you probably saw it? No? My favorite chick flick is Gladiator, so... Oh. No, but I've watched that about five times. But Darcy ends up marrying Lizzie. But he had been, an arrangement was made between his parents, I think at about the time of birth, where he would marry Catherine de Burgh's very sickly-looking daughter when they got older. He ends up marrying Lizzie, who was not... This ugly daughter. <laughs> but often that goes back even years ago. I know in India they still have contractual obligations. So I guess there's a sense we could say if we got married, my wife is the wife of my youth. But it's not talking about the same thing in the Bible. This goes back to arranged marriages. And uh, arranged marriages can work. In fact, I'm convinced, at least I was convinced before our children got married, I could do a better job than them. They rebelled. Now, they ended up with pretty good spouses. I mean, we were still praying. 
even though they wouldn't let us arrange marriages. But I tried. <laughs> but it went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> Dad, you don't think we can make a good decision? I said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's something that's long past in our society, and it'll never be returned. But if you go to India, I know Daniel Kumar. His marriage was arranged. Now, he did have a say-so, though, in the gal he did marry. But his parents had to go and make an arrangement with Rosama's family for them to get married. And the same thing was true with Santos George. His marriage was arranged. He was in India. His wife's dad was in India. He had come to America for a while, but he went back to India. And he arranged the marriage with one of his students. And so she had never, Sophie had never seen her husband. So Santosh had to make a trip so that she could talk with him because she wanted to make sure that she was, he wasn't trying to get her money. So they're very serious about that. So in a lot of parts of the world, it still goes on. That would be the type of thing. So it's not the same thing as what we have. Well, let me go on my observations. Breaking the covenant relationship is a challenge to God's authority. Since God stands as a witness to and an enforcer of this covenant relationship, it is not a mere human contract, but one that includes a heavenly dimension. God confirms and acknowledges the wedding. It has heavenly confirmation by the eternal, self-existent, sovereign God. To break faith with one partner is to defy the Almighty. Oh, I would to God that Christians and our culture would get a hold of that. I wish the government of Michigan did it. The, the government of Michigan... By legalizing no-fault divorce, they're practicing the divorce that Malachi's writing against here. It's called hatred divorce, aversion divorce. Well, when it's from no-fault, essentially you're saying, I hate my spouse. Now, I know I'm an ordained minister. Uh, I've done a few wedding ceremonies. I'm, you know, probably I've done ten. But, you know, it does seem to me that in that relationship, if I did not have the parents on board, I wouldn't have done the ceremony when I was a pastor. Now, the reason why I say that is because I've got a number of friends who married couples, and they didn't take it seriously, and they ended up divorced. And I always thought that was a serious tragedy. So, you know, I, I did my best to avoid that. But never, by the way, what I did when I pastored, I would only marry people in my church. Like if their kids went away with college and I could confirm that they were growing Christians. Because many people in the community would come to me and I wouldn't marry them. Because I did not know the seriousness of their seriousness. So 
I'd set that up. By the way, I was only 25 to 27 when I pastored. I did some really stupid things, but I'm surprised there were some things I did right. And that was I did not want to become known as the marrying pastor because all kind of people wanted me to marry them. And I just said, this is the policy I've set up with the church when they first called me. And so I avoided a lot of it. Now, I don't know that they all stayed married, but nevertheless, I was trying to take it seriously. At the time, I viewed them as growing Christians. So I married a few family members who I thought were growing Christians. But I've also turned some down. So now what my point is, is somebody who had an aversion divorce, a no-fault divorce, in the eyes of God, I could not perform the ceremony because that's an unbiblical divorce. Now, if there is a biblical divorce, and I'm convinced they're growing Christians, and I know that, I could do the ceremony because I think there are biblical grounds for divorce. But I could not do it if that was not the case. Because I, representing as a representative of God, performing the ceremony, felt like I needed to take it seriously. So, you know, I think I told you all, with all three of our children when they got married, I was involved in some of it. And I did say to both my sons and their now spouses, and my daughter and her spouse, that if my son or daughter was unfaithful in the marriage, that the other had the biblical right to divorce them. And in some cases, I think divorce is the right thing. When somebody consistently commits adultery and the wife keeps on taking it back, taking the turkey back, What does that communicate to the kids? You know, you can marry and be a moral leper. We're just going to look the other way. And we're walking back with open arms. Well, I would counsel them, divorce the bum. Because you're better off to be a single parent. And yet your kids know you took those marriage obligations so seriously you felt it demanded a biblical divorce. But a lot of Christians don't view it that way. But I don't see that that way at all because I always think of the message. Well, anyway, that's what I told all of our children when they got married. And so far, we thank God. I'm not going to say we've got our fingers crossed. They're still married. (laughs) And, you know, I hope that stays the case because We love seeing our grandchildren. And that gets harder when you get a divorce situation. But in the eyes of God, to get a divorce without biblical grounds defies the Almighty. So we need to take it and recognize God's authority is on that wedding. Secondly, the marriage partner is described in two ways in this text. She is the wife of your youth, and two, the wife of your marriage covenant. 
Both of these expressions point to the immediate relationship of the marriage covenant. To break this bond is to deny the most intimate of all earthly relationships. To be unfaithful by breaking the marital covenant is to be unfaithful to God. This provides an example of how Israel had shown disloyalty to the God of the covenant. Well, that concludes this section. We need to move on to C, an accusation about Judah's covenant violations by practicing aversion divorce. Verses 15 to 16a. Notice our text says, Has not the one God, I don't agree with the NIV's translation, one does not immediately follow God. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Notice the man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Well, let's look at this verse and a half a little bit more thoroughly. Look, first of all, this would be page 42 for you. Is that right? 42? A reason for Yahweh's accusation about Judah's covenant violations through a virgin divorce. Verse 15a and 15b provide a reason for God's challenge Oops, sorry about that. I should do what it says at the movie theater. You know, they always have some neat thing that causes you to put your alarm on vibrate. It's what I should do here. I need to do it with some of my seminary students. Quite frankly, it gets a little old sometimes. Anyway, my apology for that. Notice, A, the covenant marriage is a one flesh relationship. Did you notice verse 15? The NIV translated that, has not the one God made you? As I note here, I prefer the ESV's translation of this. Did he, the Lord, not make them one? The use of one points back to the one flesh relationship described in Genesis 2.24. Notice what it says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. What I'm saying, Malachi 2, verse 15, looks back to that. Additionally, this reference to Genesis 2 is further supported by the fact that the book of Malachi as a whole is filled with references and allusions to the Pentateuch. One example is Genesis 2 uses the word may quite a bit. So does Genesis 1. But the overall common denominator is they're both dealing with marriage. So this is going back to the same foundation. In the context of aversion divorce, the early chapters of Genesis lay the foundation for marital unity as opposed to marital disunity. 
Thus, Malachi's one, use of one in 2.15 as a reference to the one flesh relationship that God established in the Garden of Eden. We could interpretly understand verse 15a like this. Has not the Lord made husband and wife one flesh? It's exactly what Genesis 2 was saying. And this is pointing back to it. The last part of verse 15a, 15a is translated in the NIV as, You belong to him in body and spirit. This has reference to the husband and wife being united to the Lord as a complete unit, body and spirit. We can harmonize verse 15 with the overall context of Malachi 2 with two questions. First, has not the Lord, the one and only God who created Israel, Israel's covenant unity, arranged the created order beginning with the first husband and wife so that the two, husband and wife, have a one flesh relationship of body and spirit? That's the point. We really don't look at it, but in our marriage, with our union, that's a union of body and spirit. It's the whole person. So that puts a seriousness to it. Uh, You know, I can still say my wife and I in August will be married 42 years. Uh, we were talking about marriage in one of my classes the other day, and I didn't know this would go on Facebook. But I was telling the men that the most important relationship in my life outside of the Lord is my relationship with my wife. And I'd like to think, and I'm pretty sure it is, hers with me. There is no no more important relationship than that. On this earth... You cannot have it with your children. The best way for me to be a good dad to my my children was to be a good husband to my wife. So I said that in passing in the class. The next thing I know is on Facebook. Need to be careful what you say in a seminary classroom. I did not plan for it to go on Facebook, <laughs> but it ended up there. But it's right. So I don't apologize for it. So... We should look at the second item, though. Is not the preservation of Israel's marriage covenant consistent with that one flesh relationship? Absolutely. So these questions give a foundation for the next question in verse 15b. Notice the divine intention for covenant marriage is a one flesh relationship. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Now, I should say here, God does not always give couples children. That just wasn't God's will for your life. Everything else is true. But generally, when most people get married and they're Christians, they're hoping to raise godly children. Whether that materializes or not is not relevant because that was the goal. Now, it does seem to me that if we don't have that in mind, we shouldn't get married. 
Our goal should be to raise up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if we lose sight of that, you know, I think we've lost sight of the biblical marriage covenant. So, you know, whatever else I can say, even though you do have problems with, whenever, whenever you have teenagers, you have problems. That's just the nature of the beast. What are the two things that are most problematic in marriages? Children and money. Well, I'm here to tell you the truth. That is the truth. That's a truism. Uh, children will always create certain tensions. Now, when the dust settles, mom and dad have to come together and think, what is best? I know uh, when our kids were young, I've messed up before and I've swatted the kids. You know, they got in trouble at school and I found out the full story afterwards. And I have to go back and, you know, I ask God to forgive me for not completely checking something out. Then I always ask my children to forgive me and have them pray with me, even when they're teenagers. You know, Daniel Kumar, his son, Danny, was in school and at school, he got caned for something. And so he comes home, and then Daniel canes Danny. And by the way, you're not done caning until you draw blood. And so Daniel found out more facts to the story. And he said to Danny, he said, you know, Dad made a mistake today. And he asked him in some form to forgive him. Well, Danny, by the way, Daniel Kumar's got very obedient kids. I mean, I think this thing of caning does work. It doesn't mean they're spiritual, but they understand the blood. So it seems a little harsh to us. But, you know, in our country, we've become so crazy. You know, you leave a black and blue mark on a kid, you run the chance of losing them. Well, Fortunately, our kids went to inner city Baptist high school because I know I've left some black and blue marks. <laughs> my mother, I feared her more than my dad. She had a, We had a paddle, and she'd go wild with it. I'd have black and blue marks up and down the back part of my legs, on my posterior, because she didn't have the control. My dad knew that he could make me cry. That was never an issue for him. She was just wanting to make sure she got the job done. But, you know what? Do I regret it today? Absolutely not. I deserved all that and more. Uh, it seems to me that we become so cautious because of the state we may run the risk of losing more children. So, and by the way, I'm not saying that you always paddle. I think it's like capital punishment. But I think we as Christians should. And I'm not saying you have to black and blue them. I think you can get the job done without doing that. But when you have kids that are moving around, it's easy to do. Very easy to do. So, but fortunately... 
know, my, my son Bob said that um, he deserved a lot more paddlings. But I think that's because he paddles his children. So when he's at the police academy, his oldest daughter, Marin, you know, she was about four at the time. And he was graduating, and she started doing some stuff, acting up. And so his wife, Missy, took her aside and spanked her. And so she says to Bob after graduation, I probably made a mistake there spanking her. And he says, Missy, this is the place where they appreciate spankings the most. It's at the police academy. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, in any event. But we do that because we're trying to raise our children so that they're disciplined. Disciplined in godliness. But nevertheless, they do need a strong hand. And if you don't have it, they'll eat you up when they get older. I've seen it time in, time out. They just talk to the kid and try to reason. Now, we tried to reason, but the reasoning came to an end. And we laid out, we had five rules, four four rules they had to follow. And if they lied, whatever the requirements were for the spanking, it was doubled. I think it was 10 swats. Well, not only were they disobedient, they lied about it. But... Anyway, I've, I've seen through the years many Christians suffer heartaches. And I always think, you know, if you would have got a hold of those kids when they were smaller, you might not have had to spank them as hard as you might think in some cases, but you ease into it so that by the time they are in senior high, you know, you can take the keys to the car away and that could be effective. So, anyway, but... You know, our objective was always to raise godly children. And, uh, you know, I don't know everybody's at the same godly rate, but I know my son who's on a gang squad, he is a very godly man. He's active in his local church. Uh, In fact, they wanted to hire him. So him and Eric Menor, both, both of them. But, uh, you know, he, he never regrets the way we raised them. In fact, he thanks God for it. Well, I'm glad to see that he's living it out. But friends, something has to take hold of the kids. Otherwise, it becomes moralisms. We cannot guarantee that our children will be regenerated. We're called upon to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we can't guarantee their regeneration. And yet you'll hear Christians... They think it's automatic. Last I saw, regeneration's a miracle. Now, it often happens in Christian families, but not always. So, but the objective is to raise godly offspring. That's the point. Well, I probably said too much about that, and hopefully you don't turn me into the law, although I think I'm past the point where they could uh, prosecute me. But I do know some, I do know a couple were because of spankings, their children were taken away. It was only temporary, but nevertheless, they were removed from the home.
that's going on in the liberal state. Well, anyway, I've said enough about that. But there's a couple divine challenges here. Notice the first one in 15c. Notice, an outgrowth of his reason for accusing Judah of covenant infractions in their marriages, the Lord gives the first challenge, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The Lord here challenges the husbands of the covenant community to internally guard themselves and not violate their obligation to the marriages arranged by their family. Now notice, they are called upon to guard themselves. Friends, it starts with the mind. And whatever we're taking into the mind that's ungodly and sometimes just extremely wicked, If you don't repent, that can come back and haunt you. What you take in and you keep taking it in, it will come out eventually. The best thing to do is repent now. That's, and, you know, it does seem to me that um, I need to repent. It's like I tell my seminary classes. How do I continue the Christian life the way I began it? I repented and believed. I've still got stuff to repent over and to reaffirm my belief in Christ. I do it virtually every morning and sometimes later in the day. I mean, I I still have my own warts. I occasionally lose my temper, although my wife's the one who provokes me to it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I can say that because she's not here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to let her hear the recording. No. Be on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that would be terrible. Oh, that would. Be, oh, wash my mouth out with soap. But anyway, we're called on to guard our hearts. Notice another reason, number three, for the divine challenge for faithfulness and covenant marriage. Verse 16a, since the marriage has issued a prohibition against Jewish husbands being unfaithful unfaithful to his covenant partner, his attention in verse 16a is to support his command. Now this is the verse, if you have some versions, if you have the old NIV, it'll say, I hate divorce. In fact, I've got it laid out here. I compare the translations The old NIV has, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Now, I hate a man covering himself with violence as well as with his God's garments, says the Lord Almighty. Now, the NIV correctly changed that in 2011. You know, I say that, that pronoun I is not in that verse, or at least that part of the verse. You have to read it into it. The new NIV takes the Hebrew text at face value. So it's the man who hates and divorces his wife. That's a better translation. By the way, the Holman Christian Standard Bible also translates it that way. So does the English Standard Version. So some of the versions are 
improving on that. Um, what we want to do now is we can see that God makes the statement about the man hating and divorcing his By the way, that's where the word aversion, that just means hatred. So we put the word aversion, it's an ad- adjective, an aversion divorce. So it's a hatred divorce. Well, let's initially look at divorce in the Old Testament here. Because God is saying some men practice this. Uh, by the way, in their culture, it was a male-dominated culture. It was very uh, anthropocentric. Now, don't forget, though, it is the Bible that clearly sets forth that women and men are both, both persons. So they're equal as far as personhood goes. Nevertheless, it was still a male-dominated society. That's the way the laws were arranged. Uh, You know, girls were not going to, generally they're not going to get the inheritance unless there's some type of exception. It's going to the guy. Now, sometimes you can have that, and a gal may, she may not have any brothers and, you know, there's, there's ways around that if you don't have a son. But that's just the way the society was oriented. I always tell my guys in Hebrew, this is going to be your best two years because the Bible says a lot about guys. And we're not translating Ruth this year or Esther. And they love it. <laughs> Yeah, they always translate the section in second year Hebrew on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> There's more theological intrigue there. So let's uh, let me summarize divorce here. We're building from a foundation about what constitutes a marriage regulated by the Mosaic Covenant. It is helpful to consider a few issues with pertinent texts that imply and regulate divorce. Initially, in some Old Testament texts, the right to a divorce is assumed. According to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4, it says, If a man found something indecent about his wife, he could issue her a certificate of divorce. Notice, Divorce is assumed in that text. And then I described it more. Look at the next page. Another passage that assumes divorce is Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 19. Let's just look at that. We'll look at the one text. Just so you'll know, I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes. Notice verses 13 to 19. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. 
Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin. But here is the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town. And the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the young woman's father because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. In Israelite society, he forfeited his right to divorce. Now, by the way, that assumes divorce is practiced out. Drop down to uh, verses 28 to 29. If man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. Again, this assumes that divorce was practiced. So those seem to be pretty clear. Also, if you notice my next paragraph, in addition, there are Old Testament texts where grounds for divorce are provided. We discussed that in Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 19. Uh, we also mentioned Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. But look at another text. Notice about five lines down. Look at that Exodus 21, 10 to 11 passage. Exodus 21, 10 to 11. This is in a context where a man gets for his son a slave wife. Um, and here, this son then decides another, to marry another woman. So he's still married to the slave wife, but he's now also a polygamist. Now, notice what happens here. Look at verse 10. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one, the slave wife, of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Well, the reason why, she never had a bride price or dowry. She was just a slave wife. Now, it could be tough in their society for her. But nevertheless, she's free to go. That means she's granted the right to divorce him. But notice what the infractions are. He, de he deprives her of the basic staples of marriage. Food, clothing, and marital rights. She's deprived of that. She's free to divorce now, if that's true for a slave wife, how much more for a free woman? By the way, I remember translating this passage years ago. I had to teach a class on rapid Hebrew reading. And uh, we translate, oh, 70 verses of Hebrew every, every week. And it's a pretty intense class. And we're doing sections from Exodus 20 to 24 as one of the sections. And we translate this and uh, one of the guys said here, 
you know, did you ever consider this and its ramifications for divorce? Generally, in the New Testament, we say uh, divorce is allowed because of adultery or in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen because of abandonment. And he said, by the way, this is a pastor of a good-sized church, a very conservative man. He says, I've never thought about this before. Well, I've thought about it a lot since then. That's why I say a divorce is permissible for adultery, abandonment, or if the partner, the male, deprives his wife of the basic staples of the marriage contract. Food, shelter, marital rights. So I prefer to say a divorce is permissible when the marriage covenant has been violated because these are basic aspects of the covenant. Well, that was a life-changing class. So anyway, that's what I'm referring to there. Also, we have Ezra 9 to 10. It's another passage that provides a ground for divorce and remarriage. In Ezra 9 to a number of Israelite men had married a pagan woman, pagan women. After the confession of this to Ezra, he seeks the Lord in prayer in the remainder of this chapter. In chapter 10, 1 and 2, the people of Israel mourn over their sins and tell Ezra that they will follow his instruction. In verse 2b to 4, Shechaniah tells Ezra that they will divorce their wives according to the Torah. In verse 5, Ezra places the Israelites under an oath to do what Shechaniah had said. In verses 7 to 17, we see how they took care of this matter of divorce. It is clear Ezra mandated this type of divorce. In this case, the grounds for divorce was that the wife was an idolater. And by doing what Ezra commanded, Israel would keep apostasy out of their land. In some sense, we would have to say that divorce in Ezra 9 and 10 was an act of obedience to God. By the way, that's why two believers should marry. You always run the risk if you marry an unbeliever that that's going to affect your children. Remember, the goal was to raise a godly offspring. Further, the bozo could treat you bad. A Christian man, we would think, would treat his wife better. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean we never have disagreements. I think it's like I told you before. If you don't have disagreements, you're not normal. Something's wrong. That means somebody is giving and somebody's taking. And somewhere the one who's been taking is going to run out of patience. Or the one who's always giving, she's not going to give enough and he's going to find it somewhere else. That's That's just the bottom line. The best marriages should be with Christians. It's not to say that we never have difficulties. Um, You know, I think that's a normal part of life. The question is, is how, when we have disagreed, how do we handle it? Do we repent? And do we tell the other one or ask him to forgive us? And be patient.
Now, I know generally my wife would agree. I'm the one who usually first stones up when we have a disagreement. And I will ask the Lord to forgive me, and I ask my wife. Now, Linda comes along. Now, sometimes she's the first, so I don't want to say that never happens. But generally, I'm probably more responsible. I'm not sure of that, though. But I would rather err on the side of humility and maintain a good relationship with my wife. And it seems to have worked for almost 42 years now. (laughs) By the way, my son Bob, his wife says, he does the same thing. Well, you know where he got it from? Right from his home. (laughs) So it's times I spanked him. I had to go back and say, you know, son, I blew it. The other kid deserved it, not you. (laughs) Will you forgive dad? (laughs) Well, I could say more, but I need to move on. Um, Finally, some Old Testament texts prohibit divorce, and we saw that in Deuteronomy 22. Well, our survey of passages pertaining to marriage and divorce reflect that under certain circumstances, divorce was allowable and gave one the freedom to remarry. And under other circumstances, divorces were not allowed. It all depends on whether there's an acceptable biblical rationale. That's the issue. Well, then notice the Lord concludes with a summary challenge in verse 16b. A look at the admonition. So guard yourselves in your, in your spirit. Malachi's repeating himself. I think that's because there's an emphasis here. These issues start in the heart. A member of the covenant community was to keep his mind so tenaciously set on being faithful in his marital contract with his spouse by covenant arrangement that they must never let the contrary thought cross their mind. And then notice the prohibition, don't break faith. Don't be unfaithful. Thou shalt not break faith to a virgin divorce. That's what it means. Well, let me draw some conclusions. We spent some time on this. But let me wrap things up. There's four conclusions that we need to draw about marriage and divorce. A, an Old Testament believer's marriage to one outside the covenant community was a detestable thing in the sight of the Lord. Though the church is not Israel... We can draw a principle from this passage that marriage in whatever dispensation is a covenant arrangement between God and the two believers of the opposite sex. It is abominable for a believer to marry an unbeliever in violation of this pattern. Now, thank God, God does forgive sin. I mean, we were under a state of condemnation. When we were in Adam... We were all condemned and we were all abominable to God. When we heard the gospel and the spirit regenerated us and the result was we repented and believed, we began a new life. The old has passed away. So, can I say, Calvary covers it all and each marriage partner 
needs to recognize that to maintain a solid marriage. B, an aversion divorce between two people in a covenant community breaks one's covenant obligation with a spouse. When a godly man and woman marry, they form a triangular relationship. God, husband, and wife. To violate the terms of this covenant arrangement through aversion divorce is to break faith with God and other believers. C. Oh, by the way, did you ever think that? We can draw an analogy with the church. That also puts a damper on church life. When members hurt, so does the body hurt. I mean, it's, and that should cause grief to the whole body. So we're affecting ourselves. We're affecting the covenant community, our, our church, I should say, not covenant community. And most of all, it defies God. Thirdly, divorcing a godly spouse to go after an unbeliever hinders the development of a godly offspring. D. God's condemnation of a virgin divorce between two believers is strongly stated as covering one's garment with violence. Did you notice the comparison? It's like covering my clothes with blood from when I murdered somebody. That's how bad it is. So, you know, that's all I have to say about marriage and divorce. Now, are there any questions? I've covered a lot. Well, thank you. You know, I can say I wish my wife was here to hear you say that. <laughs> no, but anyway, I appreciate your patience. So now next week we'll pick up and we will conclude the book. I'm in a position where I am able to cover it by then. Okay, I look forward to seeing you. Hope, and hopefully you don't go out of town. <laughs>